Welcome to Major League Boys, episode one. I'm your host, Hank. With me is Ty and Andrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just going to start with our intros today. So, Andrew, why don't you go first? Tell us about yourself and tell us about your awful teams. Uh, okay. Well, I only have one really awful team. That's clearly the Diamondbacks. Uh, grew up with them. I was born in Arizona. Uh, my other teams, though, would be New England Patriots and Golden State Warriors because I'm kind of from all over the place. Uh, most people like to rag on me, call me a bandwagoner, but that's okay. You know, <laughs> those are my teams. Yeah. All right. All right. Ty? I am a California boy, so I go for the Giants and I go for the Sacramento Kings. However, uh, my family was born and raised in uh, Athens, Georgia, so I am also a Falcon fan by nature since they were the first football team I'd ever watched. Growing up, Barry Sanders was one of my favorite all-time players. He showtime. And also watching Michael Vick before he got himself in the predicament he did, and I had to basically just watch everybody destroy him even though he deserved it. And uh, now I'm a Matt Ryan stan, even though he um, he has occasions where he uh, is not amazing, obviously, especially when he doesn't have anybody guarding him, which is our current problem. But yeah, that's that's my uh, my life in a nutshell. Watch a lot of championships coming through uh, the Giants teams. I've watched the Kings go into basketball hell and uh, the Falcons, you know, I watched them get dangerously close to winning a Super Bowl and they celebrated in the locker room halfway through that Super Bowl. And then that was the rest of my life there right then. So there I is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm originally from Georgia, so that's why you got the Falcons gear up behind me. Good old Tony Gonzalez. Unfortunately, we couldn't get him a ring before he left <laughs> God damn. Uh, and, uh, and retired. Um, as far as baseball, I, uh, I didn't really grow up watching a lot of baseball. My grandparents had taken me to my first baseball game back in like 2000, 2001, somewhere around that time frame, And, uh, that was through the Braves game. And that was back when they played the Montreal Expos, which is not a team anymore. They are now the Washington Nationals. But, uh, first world series I really watched was the 2014 world series Royals and giants. And I liked watching Bumgarner pitch and you can't ask for a better catcher than Buster Posey. So I decided to go all in on the giants. And since then I've been just been a giants fan and, uh, really enjoyed this 107 win season we just had, um, fortunately Posey is no longer with us. He decided to, uh, retire and you can't really blame the guy. He was in a lot of pain apparently. And, um, glad we had him glad he gets to go spend time with his family now, you know, that's uh, well-earned, well-deserved. Uh, and as far as basketball, uh, I do not really have loyalty to a single team anymore. Um, you know, the players kind of made that popular. So I figured I'd follow that bandwagon and, uh, I'm more of a Kawhi Leonard fan than I really am a fan of a team. Although back in the day, I was a huge Spurs fan. I liked watching uh, Popovich coach the, uh, that team. And uh, when you get the one of the great big threes and Ginobili, Parker, and, and Duncan, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a great team to watch and, and seeing all their playoff berths for what, like 19, 20 years in a row that they had a playoff berth. So that is me in a nutshell. So – Today, we're going to be going over what we know so far about the lockout. I'm going to briefly go down uh, what we are, where we are now. Uh, and then after that, maybe talk a little bit about college baseball and then uh, touch on the NBA and the NFL. Um, so going over the lockout real quick, everything actually started back in August. Uh, that was the first meeting where, the, or where MLB proposed a salary floor of $100 million with a lower luxury tax threshold from the current 210 to 180 million dollars and these were non-starters for the players association and then uh, in october an interview came out with the white Sox chairman jerry reinsdorf and what's funny about some of his quotes is that these are quotes that he said while he's sitting in the white Sox stadium watching batting practice for the uh alds game three he said, uh, look, these deals get made the last week. It's the same thing with players, uh, contracts, and arbitration. They all settled the last day. So he's kind of like insinuating it's the player's fault that it was taking a long time to get a new CBA. 
Um, and then he said, I know this, I looked at our last offer and boy, it looked uh, to me like it was a very fair offer. Uh, it wasn't so. And then 18th of November, Manfred uh, is quoted as saying an offseason lockout that moves the process forward is different than a labor dispute that costs games. Well, it's looking like we're probably going to cost games anyway. Manfred looks like he got that one wrong. Yeah, it says and the then, they're going <laughs> to possibly cancel regular season games by Monday if they don't come up with a solution this weekend. Yep. And then the 1st of December, the uh, Players Association and MLB met in Dallas for less than 10 minutes. Player Ian Hat said that the league, quote, didn't make one economic proposal during the negotiations over the three-day period and calls it a horrible way to negotiate. And then the next day, we all know what happened. The voters unanimous or the uh, owners unanimously voted to lock out the players. Um, and then there wasn't even any proposal sent, no meetings until 13th of January. That's when the first proposal was sent to the Players Association over a Zoom call. And then 24th of January, we have the first in-person meeting of the lockout where the union decided to drop their proposal to shorten service time necessary to make players eligible for free agency uh, and modify their revenue sharing proposal. Originally, the Players Association wanted to reduce revenue sharing by $100 million. Now they're kind of sitting at $30 million. And then 25th of January, there was a second in-person meeting in a row. Uh, the Players Association wanted $750,000 minimum salary. The league proposed $615,000. Um, and the league also scrapped its request to eliminate the Super 2 tier of arbitration uh, entirely. So originally, they wanted to completely get rid of it. Uh, and then 1st of February, another meeting that was 90 minutes, kind of modified a couple of things, not a lot. Uh, the players offered 12-team playoffs. The owners won a 14-team playoffs. The players also agreed to universal DH. Uh, 3rd of February, the MLB doesn't even counter the proposal from the first and instead requests a federal mediator, which the Players Association the next day were like, no, we're not doing that. We're going to sit down. We need to just sit down and talk this out. After that, on the 12th of February, they meet in New York. The league offers a 130-page proposal with only a slight increase in the competitive balance tax and minimum salary, and it just underwhelmed the union. They're like, you're not moving at all. Uh, the league wants to, or originally said, you know, we'll go up from 210 to 214. And the players want like a $245 million uh, CBT. So, and then everybody's favorite date, 15th of February, came and went. Pitchers and catchers did not report. So, and then a few days later, it's officially announced on the 18th of February that spring training is going to be delayed. No surprise there. Come on, guys. Why do they even have to make that announcement when it's obvious? Uh, and then there was the. Yeah, I'm sorry yeah. about that. Um, but there was, then there was the 15 minute meeting on the 17th where everybody's like, what the hell happened in there? But basically, where we are now is that. The players and the owners are kind of at the standstill. They're not really moving very much. The MLB raised their offer uh, for pre-arbitration from 15 to 20. They've only been moving in 20 or $5 million increments. The MLB is now at 115. So they're still very far off there. Uh, the players are now asking for about $775,000 for minimum salary, and the league offered a $640,000 minimum, increasing $10,000 every year. Um, and then we're still at the competitive balance tax. They're saying, hey, we're going to start it at $214,000, and then it'll raise by $2 million uh, each year uh for the next cba so they're both still very far off they're not really trying to move in one way or the other and i heard someone today say something that i thought was kind of silly uh they said you know that the owners are the ones that have the most to lose right now because if they don't play games and they're not get, gonna get the revenues from the from the games well that's yeah. correct i don't think the owners really have anything to lose in that aspect because this isn't their only revenue that they've got coming in and anybody that's got millions of dollars is smart and doesn't just have it sitting around in cash. They've got it making money somewhere else. Like these owners aren't just the chairman of 
these teams. They have other companies they own. Like the Red Sox owner owns uh, a soccer team and a Formula One team. Like, yeah, these guys have more forms of revenue coming in. They do. The- I mean, it's it's not uh, an inaccurate statement that they do have the most to lose as far as just the MLB goes. They have other forms of revenue outside of that. They can, like, you can do the stock trade and own certain portions of a company uh, to basically own a stadium for yourself too. Even if the team doesn't own the stadium, they can own the, the company that makes the chairs for it. The people, the maintenance facilities, they can own the fucking, they can own all the food brands, like a major stock in Nathan's. So like they can do things to like kind of spur and li- kind of limit their losses on it. But as far as like MLB goes, they are taking a higher loss than the players. But I mean, like to your point, it's not their only source of revenue. I think the main thing that they're worried about losing is control over the future. Because like, if they set this standard now, it's only going to go up. Like, it's not going to their salaries aren't going to go down. So like, they don't have the option in the future to be like, oh, I don't want to pay you millions of dollars now. Now you're only going to make six figures. Like, as soon as it hits this, it's going to go up or stay the same at, at the very least. And yeah, they you know. Or what they want to do for a competitive salary because then then you get uh, moving on to like fucking nfl issues like your your guys guy in atlanta matt ryan he he doesn't really even have to play if he doesn't want to he just has to show up to games to earn millions of dollars right and no matter what team he goes on to now atlanta is still on the hook for that for that contract right so and, like, and- i think it's more of a control issue and the thing is, too, is that, you know, my my car has four wheels on it and we could just lose one of those wheels. And I'm sure I'll be fine. You know, I'm sure I'll be able to make it through with the other three. And the reality is, it's not. That's not the truth. If I lose a wheel on one of my cars, it, the whole operation is going to even if the rest of the wheels on those cars are going to be working the way they're supposed to be. You're still not going to have a functioning vehicle. The, these owners are going to bleed if they have to a situation where they have to postpone the season for any particular reason. What do people don't understand is that when you're operating a franchise, you have contracts for everything that you do. You have contracts for the even renting out the stadium. You have contracts for concessions. You have contracts across the board. Any sort of delay on that means that they have to go back to the agreements and they actually have to renegotiate how they're going to move forward with this new agreement. They can lose out on a lot of the penalties. Now, of course, we don't have visibility on what these agreements are for these owners. So if they're missing out on any sort of league start dates, any sort of contractual negotiation agreements that they've already pre-approved prior to going into the season, they could be penalized for it and will have to pay out. That's one of those things that the, that the owners are going to have to deal with. And eventually at some point or another, they're going to have to come to an agreement with the player association in order to make this happen. And if they're going to have that at a standstill, they're going to also have to deal with the players backlash on that, finding another league to go to and jump to losing the ratings from the networks. This is a huge situation for the ownership that seems to just sort of fly by the handles based off of stubbornness, selfishness, the idea that this is sort of a pissing contest with the players. This is one of those things where they're playing the ego game. They have their stick measurements and they think that their stick measurements is larger than the players. They think that they're more important to the, to the franchise than the players that everybody comes to come see. They play all this money for a good, a good proponent to how valuable these players are. You're wearing a jersey. You have a Gonzalez jersey in the background. You paid money to have that resemblance of what that player meant to you during his time on the team. The players are a valuable asset. The players are the asset. If you're not going to invest in the players, you're not investing in the fans. You're not investing in the franchise. You're investing in yourself. And if you care more about yourself than the league or the franchise, you don't deserve to have it, in my, in my honest opinion. But I think that in this, in this course, we're looking at a situation where the owners are picking their pockets over the league. They're picking their portfolio, their whole makeup of financial records, other than we're looking at the league and what's fair for the players. They're not investing in their assets. They're investing in line in their pockets. And the problem with that is that you're always going to have the backlash from not only the fans, but the players when the ownership wants to look at their own perspective I want to look at their own situation versus actually taking a stance at looking at what's best for the players, what's best for the league, and what's best for the franchise. So this is very disappointing for the league. It's very disappointing for fans. 
And it's, it's probably disappointing for players who are really looking forward to making a splash in the league, especially for the new players that have been moved up from the minors and, you know, some oh, yeah. of the new acquisitions that happened in the offseason too. I mean, this is one of those things where it's, 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 it's detrimental across the board, especially even if there is a delay, because I'm sure they probably allocated a window of time where they could say, okay, we don't really need to do this until this date and not lose out. But that's still, as you've mentioned, without spring training, Going into the season, players are not going to be ready to play. They're really right. not. And, and the thing is, like, all right, so maybe what I said originally was a little bit silly, but, um, you know, in the, in the owners' heads, they've probably got a number worked out. We can afford to move, uh, miss 20 or 30 games. I mean, we did just have a very shortened season uh, back in 2020. So they, they have seen how it can work with less games and with no people there. Are they still hurting from that? Probably. Do they want to do that? I really hope not. But they know that they can make it work. And then uh, another opinion that I heard today that I thought really made a lot of sense is, you know, they can end the lockout and still have the negotiations going on. There's nothing that says you have to have the lockout to have the negotiations or you can't have negotiations outside of lockout. They can just be like, look, you want the games back. We want the games back. And the sooner we get you guys into some kind of spring training and working with your trainers and working with your coaches, the healthier you're going to be when we finally do get back to baseball. We're not going to let anybody in to watch you guys uh, play your spring training games. We're not going to televise it, but Hey, we're in the lockout while we continue these negotiations, the players that need to go to your training, the players that are going to stay here and negotiate with us, stay here. We'll get this figured out. Like, I mean, that's that's a great point. That, that's a great point, but like to that, like that, that's why I don't think that what you said earlier was silly at all. Like, I don't think either of what you guys said was silly. It's both two sides of the same coin. Whereas it's just that if the players end the lockout, though, they lose that sense of virtual control that they have over the situation. You mean the owners? Like, they can discontinue the lockout while still continuing negotiations. But as soon as they discontinue that lockout, they lose a lot of leverage. That's true. But Because to Andrew's point, to double down on that, to piggyback on that, if the players still have the lockout, the players have the right to walk away from the circumstance if they're not getting what they want. If they play the game and still try to negotiate, they're playing, they're playing in the field of the owners. They're playing in the owner's field as opposed to having to have the owners bring the ball to their court. Because yeah. what's happening is, is that – there is a demand from the player association, from the players, and also just the entire organization to have this sort of fairness for the players. And if they don't get that, and while they're still playing the game that the owners are putting out for them, they're, they're, what they're demonstrating is, you know, we want this, but we're not willing to really stand on a hill or die on a hill for this. We're not willing to sacrifice. When you have a lockout and they're not playing and, they're contra and there are contractual obligations at play where if you don't play, you might lose out on stuff and they're still not showing up and they're still not reporting the play. What they're saying is, we don't think this is fair. We're not going to stand for this. We're not going to continue this same agreement that we had until we get this. And we're not going to give you what you want, which would be us showing up, us playing, us keeping that revenue spinning for you to continue to have everything that you have and not see the equal side of it for us. And that's kind of what it is. It's a, it's a classic owner versus player situation where you have, and they saw similar things in the NBA, they saw similar things in the NFL. There was a disparity between how players were being paid versus how the ownership was handling the franchise. And this is one of those situations where when the lockout is present and players are not playing the game, the ownership loses out too because of all the different things that go into running the franchise. If the games are playing and being televised, there's not They're much not. that the ownership's losing. Right. Well, the thing is, like, <clears throat> so the owners initiated the lockout because the CBA was expiring. And then it, the, the if you don't have the new CBA, then the players won't play. Right. But to even do the negotiations, you both have to talk. And the league decided, hey, we're going to lock you out. We're not going to let you talk to your coaches. And by the way, we're going to wait until the middle of January before we say anything. Like, the owners have not really shown in any shape, form, or fashion that they care about this game. No, they did not They made very, very minimal movement on all of their proposals. And what I've heard other people start to say is that what they're really trying to do is show that with their 
minimal movement. They're still trying to negotiate, whereas the players have been a bit more rigid on a lot of their stances and even gone higher on some of their asks instead of trying to meet in the middle income lower. Uh, and they're trying to get to a true impasse where you are going to have to have an outside entity actually come in and sit down with both sides and be like, look, here's what we've got to do. If the owners can get to that actual impasse, then they have all the leverage. So if they keep trying to make those small movements to where over a long period of time, it looks like they were trying to come up and meet and then the players still stand still on a lot of what they're trying to get. From a federal mediator standpoint, it's going to look like the owners were actually trying. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's really what they want is for it to look like they're trying. Honestly, I think all these closed door meetings aren't actually for, it's not for coming up with a solution for the players. I it's agree. For coming up with a solution for how long they can hold out realistically, right. how much they can actually afford to lose. Because at this point, it's, it's monetary versus how much illusion of control that they have over the situation. If they end up like calling this a W for the fucking, for the owners, then they control a little bit more of the future on how this goes. And it's, it's up to if that's worth more than the monetary gain that's, that they're actually losing out on, which at your point, they don't have a lot that they're losing. They do have, they do stand to lose more than the players, but they don't have a lot that they're losing on the grand scheme of things. So but, like, but that's, but that's really what the fight is about though. It's, it's about yeah. who has control over the league, who has control, yeah. who has more power over the player base. Is it the owners that are running the franchise right. Or do the players have their own? They do they have their own freedom to actually make the the, the living wage that they want to make? And then also, if they're yeah. going to be able to have control over their own their own their, their own uh, careers, you know, and that and that's that's always been the fight in, in sports, especially in sports franchising sports. You know, financials when it comes to sports too is that you know how many of these players actually have control over their own destiny versus. How many times do they have to rely on the ownership to actually give a crap about the players? And I think we find out pretty, you know, pretty predominantly that that a lot of times the coaches, as you mentioned, they they just they don't care about the game. They care about the investment and how that's going to return for them. And and behind these closed doors, I would probably argue that. And to Andrew's point, these are just sort of meetings, roundtable meetings is just figure out how long can we hold out? How long can we actually withstand this? And what is our exposure rate if something does happen and we don't come to an agreement? And what can we do to recover from this? And they, and the unfortunate part about it is that the ownership does have enough of a safety net in this situation where things don't go the way they wanted to. There's a recovery for them. A lot of these players, a good portion of them probably come from other countries, come from other places to come play this game. And if it doesn't play out for them, they don't have a backup plan because they moved here specifically to play this game. And if they right. don't, you know, and not to say that it's going to come to a worst case scenario where they're not going to ever play baseball again, but it's definitely one of those things where the player base is going to be affected. The families of the player base is going to be affected across the board. It's one of those things where the exposure rate is significantly higher for the players, even though they want to have control over the situation. And it's a fight that they deserve to win. I think that's where the players kind of fall short on that too, is that like the reason they have, I think that these backdoor meetings or these closed door meetings with all the uh, coaches, with all the owners, sorry, with all the owners is just about how long they can hold out is because like it, whoever stays united on this front too is going to uh, play a huge factor into who wins it. So like all the owners have to be on the same page that we're going to hold out for this long. Can you keep holding out for this long? Can you keep, like all your losses under control until we get there and like realistically they could can the entire season and still be fine whether they're willing to do that or not is up for is up for debate because like you do have some owners who are trickling trickling here and there you do have ones who do care about the game ones who just like bought the team because they're huge fans they're very far and few between mostly it's an investment but for like the players like if you have ones from foreign countries they some of them only came here on a two-year visa, so they might not even be citizens. You have their families that they have to care about. And I honestly, I don't think it's about control for the players. For the players, maybe some of them it's about control over the future. But for a lot of the players, it seems to be like monetary value for what they are worth. And people should get paid what they're worth. So it's an understandable struggle. But then you also have not everyone united on that front either because 
what Ty brought up earlier was that you do have minors who just now made it to the majors who really, really want to play, who don't really care about monetary value at all because they're getting paid more than they are in the minors. This is their chance to make their shot. They care about playing the game. Um, yeah. You also have like diehard players like in the NBA, you have uh, Steph Curry. He doesn't care about anything except playing basketball. I don't think you take that basketball and believe from that man. He's got like no identity. That is his identity. He was on his rookie contract for longer than he needed to. They extended him out and didn't even pay him the full max until just recently. Yeah. <laughs> like, He's like, you're going to let me play professionally. Hell yeah. I'm going to do it. And, and so just about baseball players like that. <clears throat> Yeah, just to bring a couple of, um, of other facts into this. So, one, there's about like 175 free agents right now in the MLB. Oh, yeah. These are people that have no idea where they're going to be playing yet. Their families don't know where they're going to be located. So that's a, a huge impact. <clears throat> and then the other thing is the players are trying to make this, one, uh, a more competitive game because there is a, a, this uh, poor deal with tanking. Um, and it is kind of unfair also in the aspect that the number 30 team in the league for projected payroll in 2022 only has $39 million of projected payroll where the top team has like $263 million of projected payroll. Hmm. So it's, it's hard to compete with, with those two teams. Like, you know, the bottom team is definitely not making it to the, the world series unless they got some really, really scrappy players that just don't care about, how hurt they are or anything like that. Um, and then, so the players are wanting to, one, increase the CBT, right? They, they also want to lower the revenue sharing, which was something that, uh, that was new to me. I didn't know much about it until last night. Um, and they want to have the NBA-style draft lottery. They want the f- first seven picks to be uh, raffled off or uh, drawn off instead of just the first four, which is what the MLB is proposing. But what's kind of interesting is for uh, a league that the players are wanting to make more competitive, it seems that there is a lot more, uh, the word that Ty used earlier is parity. And just to give you an example, so since 1999, the NBA finals has been won by 10 different teams. Uh Four of those teams had multiple wins, and the top one is the Lakers with six. So the Lakers had six, Spurs had five, and then the Warriors and the Heat each had three. Yeah. And the NFL, 13 different teams over that same time period won the Super Bowl. Pats have seven – or uh, six, excuse me. There are seven teams with multiple wins. The Pats had six. Yeah. Uh, and then the Rams, Bucks, Broncos, Ravens, Giants, and Steelers each had two. Over that same time frame, 15 different teams have won the World Series for those multiple wins, and the top is the Red Sox with four. Then the Giants and the Yankees each with three, and the Cardinals with two. So if you just go kind of based on those numbers, baseball is is, is still competitive, and, and their playoff uh, format is part of what made it uh, competitive, and you know baseball kind of prided itself on – it being the league that it was always the toughest to kind of make it all the way to the world series. And especially to have teams repeat appearances into the world series because especially when you start having those uh, five game series leading up to a seven game world series, it, it doesn't boil down to one game, one game uh, at the, in the playoffs in the MLB and at the end of the, of the season doesn't have as much of an impact as it does in, uh, in football. You know, you, you have one bad team have a really good game at the end of a season and then into the playoffs and they can make it all the way to the top. The giants were not actually great teams when they beat the Patriots, both of those seasons, they just happened to make it all the way to the top. Well, I mean, we look at what happened last year too, and in, in, in uh, MLB and you know, the, the Braves winning the last world series, pretty sure that they were nobody in, in in any sort of analytical circle was saying hey the Braves have a chance of taking the, uh, the World Series this year I mean it's one of those things where parity exists in an MLB a lot more exclusively than it does in any other sports because of the lack of superstar talent or the lack of you know a grouping as far as you know what you see in sort of 
NBA where it's sort of a player run league where the superstars go to be with other superstars to win multiple rings. And there's a lot of incentive based situations that come off of that too, because um, when you win a, a, you know, a championship, your, your market value increases significantly. And then there's also incentive based contracts like you see in the NFL, where if they get a certain number of catches during the season, uh, they, they get some sort of incentive on their contract. We saw that same thing happen with Rob Gronkowski when Tom Brady was trying to incentivize his contract and get him a payday because he got a certain number of catches throughout the season, so much so that he is on record and on video telling his coach, you're not pulling Rob out of this play. You're not pulling him off. He's going to get his catches primarily because players know the incentives on their contracts. They know how to get paydays out of it. You don't really see that very much in the MLB. Um, There might be some incentive base we don't know about, maybe for some of the bullpen players, some of the pitchers that are top of the league, maybe Shohei has something we don't know, but it's not really talked about very often, or maybe I just don't have the knowledge on it. But I think that's one of those things where the players want to see a little bit more of the individualistic aspect of their finances sort of play out in the MLB where it doesn't play out as much as it probably should be. Even with as much parity as they have, I think sort of reiterating what I was sort of referencing as far as players having control over their own career. I think that that is something that they would want to have sort of illustrated a little bit more in their play that if they play well, they are in control of a sense of their own finances and their own career. Yeah. And that's, that's why they're trying to get this pre-arbitration bonus pool of a hundred million dollars. And that's why they are trying to get it allotted to the people that uh, they want it. I think they're trying to get it to like the top 75 or top 80% of the super two uh, tier players, uh, which I'm going to have to go read more about super two and how that actually works. But, and, and the, the league is only offering 20 at this point. So that's, that's a huge disparity there. And, uh, you know, like you said, we don't really hear a lot about the bonuses that the baseball players would get. And, and I would like to learn more about it. I think they're trying to start, I think they want to get together and figure out which like war that they're going to use to actually decide which, how these players are going to be allotted uh, any money from this bonus pool. But, um, but yeah, like, like you said, to, to also to that, as far as the draft re, reconstruction, as far as them all getting drafted top seven and, and creating more competition within the league, I, I agree that I think that having the top seven be drafted on a lottery would create some sort of parity. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that the ownership may have a different perspective on that. And then there's also the concentration of like having one sort of opinion for what like the generality of of all ownership because there might be some different owners who have different perspective on how the draft may go there may be some split decisions and on that because each individual ownership for each team is different there are owners of a small market team who are probably not as well versed in um in some of the financial backings that some of the bigger ownership probably has and they may have a different opinion on how the actual uh how the actual league presents the draft situation. So we could be looking at a circumstance where the bigger backing or the bigger market ownership is speaking for some of the small market when they say we want to have control over the draft compensation because, or the draft, uh, the draft structure, just so we can have some sort of say on how other teams are going to be structured because we want ours to be structured this way. And I think we might be seeing a little bit of that, in how some of this arbitration is going, mostly saying that because, as we all know, um, in other leagues, there are teams that will dominate the league as far as being able to get players into their cities, being able to, you know, persuade draft situations. I mean, if we take a look at the Lonzo Ball situation, uh, I don't know if you guys recall that, but he was already a, he was a Laker before he even got into the draft. And that was because his dad was so heavily involved in all the big markets with this brand, with, with, you know, making an impact on the media and all these different things. He basically got his team. uh, He got his son on the Lakers. And the same thing we're seeing now with LeBron James, LeBron James is running the media talking about how he wants to play with Bronny in his last season. So now we're seeing how players are manipulating the market to be able to be, to, to be able to get their children in on, you know, the, some of these big market teams. And we're seeing how big market is dominating these leagues. And it's one of those things where it's happening right now in the MLB. 
it's happening right now with the player base and as far as the arbitration is going. I think they're speaking up for the small market because small market is a small market and just doesn't have the voice. And I think we're seeing that we're going to continue to see that as this the whole arbitration moves forward. Yeah, honestly, it's it like you said, it's happening more in NFL and uh, NBA where the players have a large amount of control over what happens. And I think the MLB is just catching up to this market at this point. They're just trying to like get something. They see other leagues getting what they want, no matter what. And they're just like, okay, well, we want a piece of that. And so that's where like the small amount of control kind of comes in from like some of the larger players who see it as more of a control over the future. But a lot of the lower tier players, not maybe lower tier, but like still higher tier, not on the same page, it's more about money. And then you have the low tier players who just like, they just want to play. Cause like you have, you have a player right now trying to organize spring training games aside from this lockout that like the owners will have no touch on. Um, my team, the Diamondbacks right now are trying to do spring training on Saturday, March 5th. They're trying to do it as early as that play against the Mariners. They, they, they're like refusing to admit that the spring training is even like canceled at the slightest. Whereas in the large scheme of things, we're talking about possibly canceling part of the main season on Monday. Yeah. So. Um, all right. So I think we've, uh, I think we've pretty much gone over this pretty well. Um, but I think we can all agree. Let's just hope that the, the, the league and the players come to terms on something here in the next couple of days. And uh, let's hope that, you know, on March 31st, we're actually watching some, some first pitches go out instead of just wondering, you know, when we're going to get baseball back. Oh, hopefully. Uh, so let's move on to some college baseball real quick. I want to talk about University of Hawaii. I got to watch all four of these games uh, in person, right behind home plate. Um, the only thing I really have to say as far as like being able to watch it live is these were long games. So the first game uh, was four hours and 27 minutes. And they the four games averaged four hours and 15 minutes. These were very, very long, drawn-out games. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two teams split the series uh, two to two. Um, and the big name that comes out of all four of these games is number one, Scotty Scott, who got on base – four out of five plate appearances, uh, getting his um, on-base or his OPS to 1,458, batting 625 uh, with an on-base percentage of 833. I mean, he uh, he really did help out his team there, getting on base as much as he could, uh, whether it was a a hit, hit by pitch, or base on ball. Um, And he had three stolen bases out of four attempts. Uh, so he, he did great for his team there and he's a lot of fun to watch short blonde haired guy. That's got just a lot of energy. I mean, you watching him run the bases, you could tell that was what he loved. He loved being out there. He loved running those bases. He loved getting home. So, uh, I really, really, really enjoyed that. And then, uh, behind him is Cole Cabrera batting 357, uh, with an on-base percentage of 526. Um, so and both Scotty and Cole had five hits, but Scotty Scott got those five runs. Cole has scored two runs. Aaron Ujimori scored two. Matt Wong scored two. Jacob Igawa scored two. And Dallas Duarte also scored two. Uh, and the big the big game for them was the, the fourth game of the series on Monday night. You had Washington State commit five errors, and that is how – Hawaii really won that game seven to four. They took advantage of the Washington state's confusion, the overthrows, the missed throws. And one of my favorites is dropping the third pitch or the third strike. The catcher couldn't hold on to the third strike. I think I saw that probably three or four times throughout this series where it should have been a called strike three, but he dropped the ball and people actually scored off of that mess up. <laughs> so I think, uh I think that's where a large amount of college differ, uh, differs from major league too is uh, first off is that major league you're playing for a paycheck you're playing against all these other greats like if you've made it to the majors 
you're definitely great enough at baseball, far better than any of us. That's for sure. Uh, but like you, you do have those small amount of errors that are fun to watch. You have those stolen bases. You have those guys who are really just fans in it of themselves who are also really good at the game before they make it to the majors. Like that happens in the minors too, like as well. It's, it's just more fun to watch, whereas it's more, I, I think, more of like, uh, I don't know, more of a set sequence in the majors, whereas like you have some strong hitter, he's going to make it, he's going to bomb it out there. You have a strong fielder, he's either going to catch it or it's going to go over his head in, and be a home run. You have a strong pitcher who's going to strike him out until his arm blows out and then you put in a new pitcher. Like there's, it's not a huge, like large scoring game for the majors rarely ever um you don't really see blowouts like that like you would in the minors and in college leagues so that's what makes it i think more fun to watch granted watching live for like your favorite team in the majors i guess would have a little bit more luster uh i think more so in the 90s when it was like uh, we were having the mark mcguire and the barry bonds eras where people were like talking about juicing and but you would go and you would see this guy just bomb it out, like not even into a home run, just out of the park entirely. So that kind of built a little bit of luster for that. I think that luster kind of exists more these days in the minors and in college. I think it's a lot more fun because you do have guys who might just have an off night and they'll drop a pitch an off night and he'll, he'll slam it right into the third baseman. You'll see a guy just make the, irrational decision to steal at that time because he's going to make it and somehow make it like you don't see yeah. that in majors because they're playing it safe yeah and it's like so i think four times probably in the first game i watched the washington state catcher throw either to the left or to the right of second base but never straight to the second baseman and that's how mm-hmm. we got a lot of stolen bases to second um but real quick just to go over the the scores and the numbers so like uh friday night Washington State beat Hawaii 5-4 uh, with one error for Washington State. Uh, Saturday night, uh, Washington State went again 4-2 with no errors by either team. Uh, Sunday afternoon, Hawaii 6-3 over Washington State with an error by both teams. And then Monday night, Hawaii 7-4 wins against Washington State with five errors committed by Washington State. So, so, so sorry for Washington State for five hours. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty bad, <laughs> but, you know, do better. Be, be better. Um, okay, good. And uh, so there, uh, Hawaii is now going on to the Tony Gwynn Classic in San Diego this weekend. Uh, they play San Diego actually tonight, today for me. So at about four o'clock in the afternoon, they'll be playing. Um, another... Uh, I've been watching a lot of college baseball throughout the past few days. Like it's always on. So that's really cool. Um, but one thing I, uh, I thought was pretty interesting and I mentioned earlier is the number one team right now is Texas. And even the number one team can make some silly, silly mistakes, like swinging at a pitch that's coming straight for your head for called or for swing and strike three, uh, getting you out. So that's, that's the batter's fault. 100%. 100%. If, oh, if, yeah. if, 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 if a pitch is coming towards your head, I mean, and you don't have the awareness to understand that it's, it's a little high and inside. <laughs> yeah. Like right at your face. Yeah. And, and I, I get it, man. Some of those pitches are quick and it's hard to get you, you keep your eye on it, man. But um, you swing at that. That's your fault. You, you know, <laughs> take the strikeout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, Lord. All right. So the next couple of topics, I'm going to kind of just let you guys go because I can't really touch on it too much. Um, what you guys want to talk about with the uh, NBA? Uh, definitely Steph Curry, man. Like, <laughs> just because all the all the things that keep coming out about Steph Curry versus KD, like that's not even on the radar for a lot of Steph Curry fans because KD doesn't measure up to Steph at all. Like for the longest time, it was LeBron versus Steph Curry back when he was on the Cavaliers. It's like where all this fucking Kevin Durant versus Steph Curry thing is coming. I don't know. Cause like the last time it was actually a thing was when he was playing for the thunder. 
for OKC. And honestly, he could have taken OKC over the Warriors. I'm a huge Warriors fan, but like OKC had their number quite a bit of times, just like Miami versus the fucking Patriots. It's, it almost happened. <laughs> it's, it's just, I, I don't understand. Like, it, it seems like everyone wants to jump on his bandwagon after he left the Thunder uh, really hard. He left the Thunder for the Warriors for that surefire championship win, which I think is great for his own career. But he's been trying to live up to that since then. He's like, oh, I didn't just, I didn't just join the Warriors for a ring. Like, yeah, you did. Like, own up to it. It's it's not that big of a deal to us. Like, that was one of those teams where it had, it had Kevin Durant, it had Steph Curry, it had Draymond Green, had Clay Thompson, had fucking who else did it have? Uh, I'm missing somebody. Uh, Andre Iguodala. That's yeah. right. So, like, you, all around, you had some superstar great to back up your team. That team was not going to win that year. I heard yeah. a lot of talk from people once he just went to Warriors that they were just like, yeah, congratulations on buying the season. We're not even going to watch NBA this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, there's there's something uh, – the, the remarkable aspect of Steph Curry that I think a lot of people are, are having issues coming to terms with is that he's not – LeBron James. He's not Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's not Kevin Durant. He's not Tim Duncan. He's not Kobe Bryant. He's he's this six three guy from Davidson who shot the shit out of the league literally. And it's just one of those things where it, it's hard to put somebody that is considered to be an everyday guy, everyday Joe, as far as you know size and and capability, over somebody who's a seven foot dragon like. Yeah, Kevin Durant is is ducking to get inside your house. Like this is how like this dude is like one of the tallest people on the planet, literally. And the fact that he can pull up jumpers from thirty feet out and drain it with a good efficiency, it's hard to say that this person isn't the best person on the floor at any given moment when you have somebody else there who is significantly shorter. There's just no way when you're coming to conversations of comparisons that you could say, you know, on an individual basis, that Steph Curry is better than Kevin Durant. But I would say the way that the, the, the teams are formed, the way that the NBA works, the way that the entire league has constructed the game and how it's supposed to be, I would say the effectiveness of Steph Curry and his personality, his persona, the way he was able to handle himself with a team, makes him by and large a better NBA player than Kevin Durant. However, if we catch them both on the street and we say, hey, go one for one, it would be very, very difficult to try to see Steph Curry beat Kevin Durant on a one-on-one. But in an NBA game, if we have the current Warriors versus Kevin Durant's current Brooklyn Nets, I'm taking the Warriors in a seven-game series just because – the way that this guy is able to just drag so much attention. I mean, I've seen Steph Curry hit half court shots in my, in, in, in my face, literally. Like I was at a game where he made a half court shot during the Chinese new year to beat the Clippers. And he did it against OKC. And it's just one of those things, man, where you watch it and you just can't believe it. You know, the ball is going to hit the net as soon as he shoots it from the moon. And yeah, it's just one of those things where you, you can't you can't quantify somebody who's that great. And that's the problem with it. That's the problem with the comparison. You see LeBron James dunking over four people. You see LeBron James dunking over people that are taller than him. You see LeBron James taking nobodies to the finals. You see all that kind of stuff. You see Kevin Durant. He took that OKC team with Russell Westbrook oh, to yeah. the finals. <laughs> And even though they lost against LeBron James, which nobody is faulting him for, it's hard to sit here and say that if you put these two players right side by side as far as their NBA career, it's hard to say that, okay, this person was better than the other because there's a lot of interchangeables. Kevin Durant may have had more scoring titles. He may have more all-star appearances. He may have a better shooting efficiency. Uh, you know, but Steph Curry is leading him on, you know, assists, steals all these other things, you can literally just find counterpoints to every argument. And the problem here now is that, um, you know, the, the comparison measure goes, okay, well, Kevin Durant, when he joined the Warriors, he was the best player on the Warriors. Yeah, he was the tallest guy 
that could shoot a 30 footer on the floor at any given moment. Okay. Yeah. Yes. He was the best player on that team. However, you know, honestly, also, you saw Steph share the ball with them during that time too. It wasn't like he was trying to be the one superstar. But think about this though. He was next to a guy who could also shoot 30 footers at a better percentage than he could. So if you left that seven footer alone and went to go cover this six foot guy over here who could shoot it over pretty much anybody at any given point over the half point line, he's going in. If you avoid that guy and go after him, the seven foot guy is just going to run and dunk over everybody there. How do you defend any of them? And I, and, and you even had a coach, the, the former Cleveland Cavalier coach come out and say, Hey, look, uh, when I was coaching that team, we blitzed Steph. We, we sent everybody at Steph. He was the most dangerous guy on the floor because at any given point in time, he could drop 10 three-pointers and you're, you're, you're down 10. Next thing you know, you're down 30 and he's on the bench on the fourth quarter. So even with Kevin Durant on the floor next to Steph, we blitzed Steph because he's a dangerous guy. He's the most dangerous person we've seen. And that's not to say that Kevin Durant isn't one of the best players on the floor. It's just Steph Curry is <laughs> – it's Steph Curry. He's Steph Curry. And yeah. just having this argument is just one of those things where all we're arguing is who's a more menacing player, who's a better one-on-one effort. And I think the better comparison would be who can – who's a better – who's the better player between Giannis and KD versus, you know, KD versus Curry because if we're doing one-on-one, I think a fair matchup for KD would be Giannis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so real quick, just some uh, some numbers here from Basketball Reference. Uh, Katie, uh, 920 games. Yeah, Steph Curry with 817. Katie's got 27.1 points over his whole career per game. Uh, Steph's averaging 24.3. Um, Katie's got 4.2 assists, uh, and Steph has 6.5. Where Steph really takes off is the – three-point percentage at 42.8 to Katie's 38.3, and then 90.8% for three uh, free throws to Katie's 88.3. Um, so those are just some some uh, surface numbers. But also real quick, I just want to mention on this basketball reference page that also has all of their nicknames, which huh. I think is really fun. So you got uh, Katie with Durantula, Katie, Slim Reaper, Easy Money Sniper, The Servant, and Green Room. And Steph Curry with uh, Steph, baby-faced assassin, Chef Curry, the Human Torch, and Threesus. Uh, so like Chef. that's pretty fun. I've never heard anybody call him Threesus, but <laughs> that sounds sounds accurate. Yeah, I mean, we saw what he did last year. I mean, why well, saw what he did last year? And you know, he got the scoring title. I mean, this guy, uh, four or five people on him at one given point. He just chucks it up over four or five people and it's net. And it's unexplainable. Like you've had like good three-point shooters over the course of the NBA, like good legends talk about Steph Curry. And they're like, I don't, he must be like tapping into another universe when he's shooting sometimes, because it's just outrageous how he's off one foot, how he just doing his quick turnaround how he's, you know, shuffling his feet, he's running around. And then the other thing that somebody else brought up that not many people talk about anymore. I mean, they do now, but kind of, but his conditioning is next level. I mean, if you watch him play, he's running around constantly, constantly. So much so that I don't know if you guys saw that when it happened. The last time they played against the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, I think his name is Del Vadova. He had to get rushed to the hospital after covering Steph Curry because he uh, was dehydrated because he couldn't keep up. And that was after <laughs> that was after one game of just kind of carrying him. And there, there was probably, uh, you know, other circumstances that played into it. But having to keep up with Steph Curry for 48 minutes consistently, um, good luck. Yeah. All right. So uh, last topic. Um... Let's talk about some NFL moves. What's uh, what do y'all think is going to be happening in this off season? Um, I know that a couple of the the big ticket items that I was tracking are things like what's going to happen with Aaron Rodgers. Do we know? Uh, and then who are the who are the Buccaneers going to replace Tom Brady with? And um, Wayne Gabbert. What? 
what's, what's, what's next for the Steelers with Big Ben being gone? Um, and then he got some contract extensions coming into question, like the Ravens, Lamar Jackson, Browns, with Baker, and the Vikings with Kirk Cousins, and the Raiders with Derek Carr. Uh, so, honestly, uh, I don't think – I don't know where Aaron Rodgers is going to go because <laughs> everyone likes to argue about him, where he's going to go, what would be best for him. I heard a very good argument for a good play for him to be going is the Colts. But, honestly, Aaron Rodgers could go wherever the fuck he wants. And I think he knows that. So, like, he's just going to call up somebody and be like, hey, I can get the Packers to let me go tomorrow. I'll bring my boy over here, and we'll just run your team. And, like, no one's really going to say no to that other than other than the Patriots, maybe, because you got Belichick who's just – he held out on Brady. He's already proved that he doesn't care. Um, and everyone else, like, they're going to be like, fuck yeah, you know, come through. And he really shows a lot of advocacy for California, especially Northern. So I think he might go to the Niners and try to replace Jimmy G. But you never know. Like, he's already said he doesn't want to be part of a rebuild team, which is any team that is not just a quarterback away from winning the Super Bowl. So it's really not a lot to go off of. But oh. – uh, yeah, I think it's like so if you look at who might be more beneficial for Aaron Rodgers, he worked with um, the coach over the Broncos, uh, Nathaniel Hackett, for three years. He worked mm-hmm. with him the past three years. So if Aaron Rodgers should go anywhere, I, he'd probably be more comfortable going over to Denver, especially because you got Bridgewater, who is a free agent. And then you got Drew Locke over there. I can't even remember who he is. Uh, and then as far as the Niners go, uh, I think they're kind of just wanting to bring in Trey Lance. You know, Trey Lance, uh, if I remember right, was actually really, really uh, productive as a college quarterback. Uh, and so their Niners fans are probably, you know what, Jimmy G, you've been good, but you're not consistent. Let's see what Trey Lance can do. They've already got somebody there that uh, that can probably be very productive for them. 100% they've been shitting on Jimmy G for a while now. It, it, it's yeah. Kyle Shanahan. Kyle, Kyle Shanahan's had had a crush on Aaron Rodgers since he became a coach. It's just one of those things where uh, – and here's the thing, too, about the whole Aaron Rodgers situation. And from my perspective, I, I, I'm, like, I'm with Andrew. I don't know where he's going to go. I don't think anybody knows where he's going to go. I don't even think Aaron Rodgers knows where he's going to go. I think the way he's looking at it is a lot like how I look at my job. If i am been at a job for 12 to 13 years and I haven't gotten a pay raise, I don't care how much I enjoy the job. I'm out. In in Aaron Rodgers' situation, he's gone to the how many, uh, you know, how many times has he gone to the championship and not made it to the Super Bowl? Like he's he's made it all the way to the conference finals and hasn't been able to seal the deal, even though it's not necessarily always on him. I think now he's probably taking a look at the landscape, and I'm sure the conversation in his mind is probably, well, I've been here for almost 13 years. I've won one chip. I watched Brett Favre have a very similar career. And I, if I want to continue doing this, I need to get on a team that's going to win because I need to start winning now. Otherwise, he's going to end up with a Brett Favre career. And I think at some point, he's going to gamble that in some capacity. And if he doesn't, he's going to start making demands for Green Bay to start making some changes. He's already talked about how he wants more leverage in the decisions for for green bay last year that was the biggest portion of him not wanting to come back was that he wanted to have more control and i think he's going to evaluate that now with his current landscape and see what it looks like but i you know the teams as far as who i think has the best chance of landing him i think it's a lot of what we've already mentioned i think the broncos have a good shot i think the raiders or the, the niners have a good shot um any other team that has not only the availability as far as cap to get him in would be good. Um, but I think he wants to, as he mentions, not go on a rebuild. And I don't think he's going to land on a rebuild team, even if they move on from him or if he decides to move on. So um, that's why I think he won't land on the Broncos. Yeah. But uh, real quick, back away. Uh, since winning the Super Bowl in 2010, Aaron Rodgers has lost four NFC championship games, three of those in overtime. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. He's he's got a great arm. He's he's no Tom Brady, but he's he, he's got a great arm. He's a very good all around quarterback, but he still needs some help down the down in the end zone. You know, it's yeah. 
he wants to bring Devontae Adams with him, which would be a huge piece if you get an Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams combination. Like, but he still needs more help. Like, he needs more guarding. He needs a little bit, like, maybe one or two more seconds to make those last-ditch efforts in, in overtime or even just to sweep the entire game. And I think that's what he's looking for. And he's not going to go where he doesn't like the area because he's working on his family. He's not going to go to a rebuild team that's, like, he's going to have to get more defensive ends to, like, save himself to get the offensive ball. He's not going to go where all of his receiving ends are completely trash and all he has is his boy. Like, he wants to go somewhere where he knows it's not 100% sure that he's going to win, but it's pretty sure, you know. And that's why I keep advocating for the Niners. I, I don't honestly care if he goes there or not. I just think it looks a lot like he might. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he should. Um, as far as the other teams, Steelers, I, I think uh, I'm really like my gut's telling me that I think Kirk Cousins is going to end up on a Steelers. And then yeah. that that seems like a very a really good trade for both teams because I think that um, the Steelers have something to offer uh, – the Vikings on the defensive side. And I think that Kirk Cousins would be a really good fit on the Steelers. Um, for the Bucks, I, 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 don't, I think they're going to land a Sean. Honestly, I think that that trade's already kind of been you know, like teased a little bit. They've already like put it out there publicly. Like, Hey, we were going after Deshaun. And I think they would prefer to have Deshaun Watson uh, assuming he gets under uh, or uh, I guess over all of these, you know, legal situations that he's still trying to settle. I think once he figures that out and he gets reinstated to the league and they say he can play, which I'm sure he can already play anyway, but I think once that hurdle is hopped over, he will eventually end up in, on the books and playing for the Bucks. Otherwise, we're going to see Mason Rudolph and Blaine Gabbert get some starting starting roles and yeah. we'll see what happens with Kirk Cousins going to have to run it back with the Vikings, which – that's another thing that I'm kind of interested about. I don't know. I don't really understand why the Vikings want to move on or from Kirk Cousins. He's been arguably one of their best quarterbacks in recent history, and um, his numbers are great. He's had a great season over the last few years. He's had their offense at a top five offense since he's been there. Them moving on from him is them taking a really weird magnifying glass that they're their team and saying, Hey, look, our issue starts at the quarterback. It's like, well, no, your issue starts on the defensive side. And I I think it's a very weird thing for the Vikings to do, but it's very in Viking nature to be like, Hey, our quarterback's the issue because we're not winning it. Just give it. It really is. But I mean, that's, that's kind of the day and age we live in, in the NFL. Whereas if your team's not doing that great, they're blaming the quarterback, which honestly doesn't make sense to me. But if they do great, they also blame the quarterback. I'm like, you have receiving ends that are pivotal pieces. Like the major reason the Patriots came back against Atlantic Fal- Atlanta Falcons was not Tom Brady. It was Julian Edelman who was making catches from God. He would go out there into the end zone and be like, I'm just going to sit out here and catch these things. Brady's like, all right, I bet. And fucking threw it to him. And then we saw an entire team turn around. Uh, you had Chris Hogan that year who put up a great fucking great effort for that year. I'm sad that we saw him go. Um and I think that's the thing that the Vikings have. So, like, the Chicago, the Chicago Bears for that division are winning out very lucky because they're seeing Green Bay lose Aaron Rodgers and they're seeing the Vikings lose Kirk Cousins. They're only going to get better without doing anything. And that's a good point because we saw that actually play itself out in the actual conference championship this year or the conference finals this year when when Cooper Cup single-handedly yeah. put the dagger in, in the Buccaneers' chance of going to the Super Bowl. And that's just one of those things where he also won the Rams or Super Bowl by having the like their last two touchdowns. And that's just one of those things where the defensive where the, the receiving end side of it, having a good receiver, a top 10 receiver, a, a triple crown receiver is one of those things that's going to make all the difference in your ball club. And Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen with Kirk Cousins, that's a top five offense. You know, we, we saw how Matt Ryan was with Calvin Ridley, Julio Jones. We see how Aaron Rodgers is with Devontae Adams. It, it's not enough to be said that now that we're playing in the league where quarterback efficiency, quarterback with big arms is the big flashy new thing 
that everybody wants to focus on. It's it's almost like the how Steph Curry has changed the three point shot in the NBA and and how you know a lot of the pitchers now for MLB is a big pro big proponent to how the league sees their game plays. You need to have a top ten receiver on the you know, on the other side. We saw it literally in the Super Bowl. It was just a combination of good quarterback and good receivers. Yeah, it, honestly, I think the one that won the Super Bowl was Eric Donald. Like, I, I think his play right there was was yeah their game. And Definitely. Yeah, going off of that, like we, you want to say the best quarterback all around at the time? You saw Tom Brady fall with the Buccaneers when he didn't have Gronkowski. He didn't have uh, Antonio Brown. He didn't have he didn't have like his receiving. It was just him out there, and he can't throw to people he doesn't trust. Yeah, yeah. Is he retiring? So, who? I think he is. <laughs> is Tom Brady is Tom Brady retiring? He, he did a. He officially announced that he's done. He's done. He said he never did, say never. Also, <laughs> yeah, he's also announced never say never. He's not. He's announced never say never, but that was in terms of like ever coming back. But uh, he released a statement that yes, he is retired. Yeah, the, I think he's holding the, out to see if Belichick will play ball with him. Is like no. that comment is about. He's not going back to that. I um, think he would if they offered him a good enough deal, but I don't think they ever will. They and won't. honestly, I'm happy with Mac Jones. Yeah, Mac uh, Jones is the future. Yeah, uh, yeah. I uh, I gotta admit, I was pretty pretty excited to see Mac Jones as a rookie get into the playoffs in his first year. That was that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, by the way, I still have that uh edelman jersey that you made me buy when i lost another bet to you. <laughs> yeah that's good uh, it, it is that's still <laughs> it is still in my closet um that's okay i still have i still have that eagles jersey in my closet yeah i want to get back to that we need to get back to that that was a fun fun bet like even if our oh, teams yeah. aren't in it just just pick a team and and whoever whoever loses has to buy oh yeah that, but, um, that bet happened with uh with Ty and the Bengals, so you know, it's it's not unheard of. I'm definitely down for the bet always because yeah, it's it's just a fun one. All right, so let's see who's in the NBA Finals this year, and then we'll go from there. Um, but uh, I think that should do it for our first episode. Um, just want to go ahead and uh, thank everybody that did end up listening to this episode. Uh, if you did, do us a favor, go ahead and uh, subscribe to our podcast. We are just starting out. We're going to try and grow this as much as we can. And uh, we're learning as much as we go on uh, as we can. Um, so hit us up in comments or, uh, or in any email. Just try and get in touch with us. Tell us some things we can do to be better for you guys. Provide better content. Uh, like I said, we want to try and give you the best stuff. So help us learn as we go along. Yeah. Uh, really, we're just fans. Doing fan right. service. Yeah. So, fanboys. Fanboys. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh-huh.